And welcome to this week's live episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our commitment, uh, I should mention to you, is to bring exceptional interviews to you each week, which are deep and wide-ranging and worthy of your attention, and also to allow for any questions or comments you might have. So when we are live, as we are now, feel free to join us. And if you haven't yet joined our growing Gray Matter with Michael Krasny community, I urge you to do that simply by going to graymatter.show. In this episode, we talk to another prominent and leading psychiatrist. I say another because a few episodes back, we had the privilege of talking to Dr. David Spiegel. This is a very different kind of psychiatric expertise, though, that Dr. Iris Steinman brings to the table with us. He's a graduate of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University and an MD who specializes in neurology and for decades has been a practicing psychiatrist. He also distinguished himself in work with patients who suffer from severe mental disorders, and he works in a traditional vein with intensive psychoanalytic psychotherapy. He's the author of a couple of books, Treating the Untreatable, Healing in the Realms of Madness, and co-author with David Garfield of Self-Psychology and Psychosis. Dr. Steinman trained with famed Scottish psychiatrist Artie Lang and worked with the National Academy of Sciences Drug Efficacy Study in evaluating antipsychotic medicines, and we welcome Dr. Ira Steinman, glad to have you with us. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about some pretty serious stuff here, and uh, I thought we'd begin by talking about schizophrenia, which always makes people think of splits from reality and psychosis. It makes me think back on dementia precox, which I guess is not has been retired a long time ago. I went back and read and discovered some interesting things that I didn't know about schizophrenia, and maybe we can flesh some of those out with you, with your long experience. 0.75% of the world population is diagnosed with schizophrenia, and about $150 billion spent in the United States alone. There is uh, schizophrenia afflicting more men than women. It's more severe in men, and 6.5% of homicides get the diagnosis of schizophrenia, 22 times the general population of suicides. But the, I think the way to begin here is this is a tough diagnosis often, isn't it? Uh, well, yes. However, back in the mid-60s, there was a study at the University of Wisconsin that it took between six and seven minutes to make the diagnosis. Well, that's pretty quick. That's awfully quick. And with that diagnosis, it's so easy to consign someone to a life of chronic, ongoing antipsychotic medication with all the potential side effects of antipsychotic medicines. Yeah, I want to talk to you about medicines that you were on that task force. So what, what, makes, so what makes a lot more sense is to really try to understand what's going on with this person, to try to walk in their moccasins, to try to get some sense of how it all developed. That's where your work is really innovative and I think in some respects revolutionary. Uh, you really I always it. I always thought it was old old school and uh, very conservative. Well, it's old school in the sense of using psychoanalysis which we can talk about and and giving psychotherapy, but the idea of getting into the mind of and the delusions that the person who is your patient is experiencing, that in itself is pretty radical. <clears throat> How else are you going to help somebody? I mean, unless you can really get as close a fix as you can on how it all developed. Well, we're talking about people who, in many instances, are hearing voices. They're 
constructing all kinds of phantasmagora that doesn't yeah. exist in the real world. Yeah. Is there a, a kind of a danger of you're going into that, stepping into that world, immersing yourself? Well, it's more dangerous for them if someone doesn't step into that world. A colleague who's now departed, um, trained at Chestnut Lodge, excellent psychiatrist, and toward the end of his career, he was retiring to move to be nearby his children. And he asked me to look after this patient he'd seen for, let's say, 20 years. And she, in those 20 years, had been in the hospital 20 or 25 times. Um, she had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge, but luckily fell on the catwalk below broke many bones, spent a number of months uh, in the hospital healing. At one time, she volunteered that she was talking to Mary at the same time. So Mary, he, mother of Jesus? Who yeah. knew? So he never asked those questions, which would have been a perfectly reasonable question to ask. <clears throat> so he said something really foolish, like, well, express Mary at which point she began to hit him. Now, years later when I told him the story, he was chagrined, and he, agree, he agreed that it was a, a very, very bad move. What he should have done is to say, well, tell me about Mary. How did Mary develop? The very first time that I saw this woman, she was staring off into space. So I asked the arcane question, what are you looking at? And there wasn't an immediate answer, but over the course of a few weeks, she began to tell me that she was looking at and gradually talking with Mary. Now, I did not ask her to express Mary. This fellow had trained at Chestnut Lodge, I would, where Frieda from Reichman was. I doubt very much that anybody there would have asked uh, this patient to express Mary, but being in California with all the expressive therapies out here, perhaps, you know, things had been modified for him. So I, I merely asked, tell me about Mary. How did Mary develop? And of course, what happened then is an, a very early history of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and then the development of an imaginary friend, a companion who stayed there to help to try to mitigate some of the pain of life. Long story short, over the next couple of years of talking about Mary, understanding the history of how Mary had developed, this person was able to give up her believed in friend Mary. Mary was extremely pugnacious, and uh, she had been fired from many jobs for either physically or verbally attacking people. And every time she did that, it was Mary doing that. It wasn't she. She was a nice, demure person. So after a couple of years of therapy, she really understood that and took Mary back into her own being and lived a very productive another 20 years of life. So to my mind... Asking about delusions, hallucinations, imaginary friends is very important, but one has to be prepared for outbursts, for a lot of 
energy coming up. Murray Jackson wrote a wonderful book called Weathering the Storms. You know, it's it's like in a good relationship with a, a feisty partner. There are bound to be all kinds of storms that happen, so you have to be there with them and enter into it with them and not cut it off but allow it to happen and most of all try to understand it and in my understanding of it uh, the other person begins to understand what they've been doing so it's, the idea it's, is it's, to bring about a cure here isn't it ultimately yes that's absolutely right and i know that one isn't supposed to say that one can cure schizophrenia but there are some people where I think that's happened. Usually there's an early history of abuse and trauma as well. But I think it's definitely possible to do it for some people, not all. Um, if you look at some of the studies of people if, who have been followed for 25 or 30 years, some percentage do pretty well without medicines. Um, and some smaller percentage end up consigned to hospitals and uh, and or lifetime of medication. In this country, the way of handling it tends to be a lifetime of medication. In other countries, not necessarily so, depending upon their social support structures as well. Um, here's a case that uh, I can tell you about that I think indicates pretty clearly that it is possible to, quote, cure schizophrenia with an understanding, dynamic approach, just trying to, to make sense of what's going on with the person and helping them to understand it in the process. And each question, each understanding, each interpretation of what's going on prepares a little beachhead. How could this person I mentioned earlier believe that Mary was there. You wouldn't, I wouldn't, but she did. So unless one begins to question it, unless one begins to try to make some sense of things, then it's very likely to persist. And if one delusional being, one imaginary companion who appears to actually be a real person, um, persists, then more can easily develop too. So what's necessary is to inquire and sit with it and sit with it and sit with it for whatever period of time it takes. Very early on in my years of doing this kind of work, I saw a young woman who'd been, she was sent here from far away. She was hospitalized at UCSF at Langley Porter for six or seven months. She was, she'd was. she been a cheerleader, maybe she's 20 years old, and the chart said she had voices. So I asked her, I said, oh, what are the voices saying? And of course, as is predictable, no one had asked her what the voices were saying. And the voices said, we're gonna kill you and in your father's mouth. So being young and uh, perhaps foolish at the time, I said, oh, are you angry about something? She said, yeah, I'm really angry about being sent here so far away from my boyfriend. I really miss my boyfriend. I said, well, are you angry at your father? There's voices saying fit in your father's mouth. 
But yeah, I'm really angry that he sent me here and didn't let me just stay at home with my boyfriend. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be here in this hospital. I said, oh, did, did it ever occur to you that maybe these voices are your own thoughts that are hard to accept uh, and that you're angry at your father? Hence, shit in your father's mouth. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. According to her, that was the end of the voices. And as this was in the first session, I saw this young woman for another six months. And as the medicines got titrated down, which I tend to try to do, if possible with someone who's psychotic, just see if they can handle it. She abruptly stopped the medicines altogether, and then she, she was living in a halfway house and raged and screamed and carried on. And I just kept saying, well, you're venting the anger that you've had before. And it very quickly settled down, and she had a very productive two or three months here and then went back to uh, where she came from and hopefully to her boyfriend. These are inspiring and, and heartening stories, but don't you get a lot of um, psychotic breaks where it's almost impossible to get through? You can't speak to these people because they're not receptive to anything even you as a traditional therapist and analyst has to say? I'm thinking about all these people on the street. No, I, I don't talk to them. I'm not involved with dealing with the homeless population. I agree, it's a terrible problem. I'm just talking about people who can make it to my office. But as far as people being unreachable or un, being unable to make contact with them, uh, I, I don't recall ever having that happen. For, for example, one patient I'd been seeing for some time was hospitalized, had decided, this person was an ascetic, and this person had decided to stop eating and drinking and was in the middle of uh, a serious uh, period of meditation and got hospitalized for losing weight and uh, not maintaining nutrition, and the doctors there wanted to give him shock treatment at the hospital. And this guy, mind you, his eyes were rolled up. He was on an IV. I came in the hospital to see him on a Friday evening. As I said, his eyes are rolled up. He's in a meditative posture, lying in his bed. And I asked the nurses to come along and uh, take some notes. So I, I sat there with him for a few minutes, and I said, Hey, Joe. It's Ira here. It's Friday. I hope you can hear me. He hadn't talked with anybody in several weeks. It's Friday evening. You haven't eaten and drinking. You're on an IV. They're planning on giving you shock treatment on Monday morning, probably at 7 o'clock, so I'm not going to come in before then. This is the last time I'm coming in. And you've got to start to eat and drink and talk. And the nurses are here, and they're going to jot this down. So this guy who seemed totally oblivious to the world, about as catatonic as anybody has ever looked, and of course he had all that waxy flexibility and all the uh, indications of catatonia, for which they thought ECT was uh, a, an approach that might work. After a few minutes, his eyes fluttered. He opened his eyes. He gave me a big smile, reached for a bottle of water one of the nurses handed him, 
drank the water, picked up some food one of the nurses handed him, ate the food, began to chat with me. And I said, you've taken this, this meditation about as far as you can. He said, yep. Monday morning when the docs came in to give him ECT, he was chatty and eating and drinking, and there was he showed no signs of that waxy flexibility of catatonia, and they had to discharge him, muttering all the time that this was not the right thing to do. Quite a breakthrough so, story. I mean, I'm struck by you know the the result, and yet at the same time, there's a voice in my head saying, I know, just for those who aren't aware of this, there are four types of schizophrenia that's traditional catatonia where people stare at walls, paranoia, hebephrenic and simple, uh, all different diagnoses, all different symptoms. But the idea of someone who is catatonic staring at a wall suddenly getting broken through to, I'll phrase it that way, by the therapist seems to be, in many people's minds, almost a, a pipe dream, a, a, a chimera or something along those lines. Um, well, cat catatonic people are communicating. They're communicating something. Um, I remember as I was looking for a residency, I wandered around to all kinds of places looking for something that might be right for me. And I was at one hospital and wandering around the wards with the chief resident. And he's, as he and I were walking along the halls, he turned to one person and said, now, this is a catatonic schizophrenic, at which point I could see the guy grimace and express such anger at this chief resident, but silently. So if your eyes are open to the possibility, it's extremely likely that you're going to find some kind of communication going on. This other fellow I mentioned before, was totally withdrawn and inward into his own world, but that's because he was uh, meditating and trying to go for a state of bliss and union with the cosmos. He had his reasons. Um, in India, they might have they might have had hundreds of people clustered around him, throwing garlands of flowers at him. Here, we put him on an IV and wanted to give him uh, ECT. We're getting some questions and some responses, and I'd like to go to them. Uh, we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Iris Steinman. Uh, lots that I want to explore with him, but if you have questions, please feel free to join us. Uh, Laura from Beaumont, Texas says, how does trauma factor into your work? Can it be a cause of more serious mental health? Uh, it's an excellent question, and you're right on the money with it. Trauma is extremely important. In the mid-2000s, let's say 2004, 2005 in Santa Monica, we had a meeting of the International Society for the Psychotherapy of Schizophrenia. The name's a little changed right now. But uh, it was all about the importance of trauma in the development of psychosis. So I th and as in my book, Treating the Untreatable, just about everybody in that book has had some level of trauma, and the sexual trauma obviously can be a big part of it. Uh, some of the most disturbed had uh, a history of sexual trauma or the death of someone important. 
So there's no question in my mind, but the trauma may be very, very important. I started to bring up a uh, an example of a cure quote, and I know that other people would, might question this: a cure of a case of schizophrenia. Okay, so this is a woman in her early thirties. She had. Uh, two children, and uh, after the birth of the second child, she fell apart, postpartum psychosis, and was hospitalized for six months. And she had then spent the next seven years heavily medicated, in and out of hospitals, in and out of halfway houses, which were better at that time than they are now. And eventually, a friend of hers asked her to come and see me, and she did. And she looked like a really burnt-out person. Um, so I'm looking at the chart that got sent along with her and trying to make some sense of things. I said, oh, it, it says here that when you first went to the hospital seven years ago, you had two rats gnawing at your heart. She said, yeah, yeah. I said, what do you think that means? Well, again, no one had ever asked about that. What does it mean? So I said the obvious. I said, well, two rats snoring at your heart. You know, you're in the hospital. You've just given birth. You have two children. Maybe the two rats were your, your way of symbolizing two children uh, gnawing at your heartstrings, that you loved them and you wanted some kind of contact with them. And very quickly, over the course of the next uh, few days, um, she began to talk to me. And what she talked about was her father. And her father, we learned over the next few weeks, was with us. Her father had died 20 years earlier. Let's say she's 12 or 13 when her father dies. She was hospitalized then for several several months. Um, but her father wasn't really dead to her. She kept her father with her at all times. So we could be talking. Her father was there too. She could offer me a cup of coffee. She'd offer one to her father too. She'd go for a bike ride. Her father would go bike riding with her, too. So as we talked about it, it was clear to me her father wasn't there. I knew this was a very risky situation. Her beloved father had died. She had a critical negative mother. Her father was the only good person in her life by her accounts. Um, and giving up the delusion of her father constantly there would be very iffy and potentially dangerous. And two or three times I had to put her in the hospital for a couple of days. But very quickly, again, over another month or so, she realized that her father was no longer there. Now, many of these psychotic people are extremely creative. So she developed a new delusion of her two children there with her. And everywhere she went, the two children were there. No longer her dead father, but her two living children. Now, she hadn't had any contact with her, with her kids for years. She'd been so 
disturbed. I said, well, this is your creative way of saying that you'd like to try to see if contact can be reestablished with your children. So over the next uh, six months or a year of therapy with me, outpatient therapy, she contacted her ex-husband. He was delighted that she was feeling better and wanted to have some contact with the kids. And uh, I would get letters in those days uh, from her from time to time saying things were great and her life was going along. I was on your forum show, God, 10 years ago or something, and there's uh, there are a bunch of messages when I got there, and I checked, and so I called the number of one of them. It turned out to be this person. And so this is maybe 40 years after I treated her. And this woman who had been such a hopeless person, heavily medicated, diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, um, had been off medications for all those intervening 38 years, let's say, had remarried someone else, had had a very productive career, was a loving grandmother, and had built a life. No more rats gnawing at her heart, huh? No more rats, no more psychiatrists overly prescribing antipsychotics and putting her into hospitals uh, and stuff like that. Which is a terrible problem and a problem that is monumental. But I want to thank Laura for her question about trauma and go to another question from Eric, who wants to know, is schizophrenia treatment considered more humane today than it used to be? Or are we in the United States simply treating a greater number of patients via prescriptions, or maybe also via psychoactive drugs, since that's kind of a motif here. Uh, yeah, I'm, thank you I'm, for the question, Eric. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a very good question. I, I think it used to be more hum, humane. I think the tendency now is for uh, medication a great deal of the time, and the uh, support services often are not terribly good any longer. Um, there are some places um, around here, I can think of several, where they have very good support services. Um, so it, it really depends upon the community you're in. Well, why do we keep hearing that there's been no major breakthrough vis-a-vis -vis schizophrenia in, say, 60 years? I mean, uh, one of the world's most foremost experts on schizophrenia uh, Fuller Torrey has essentially said as much, and a number of other people in your profession have said, we're waiting for, waiting for major breakthroughs in bipolar. Uh, it used to be called manic depressive, too. Well, for both, the main thrust has been medication. And certainly bipolar can be handled with medication, and... With, is, yeah. with people who are bipolar, you do need to have various medications, a mood-stabilizing medication, often an antipsychotic medication, if the person will tolerate it, uh, an anti-manic medicine like lithium. And, you know, with all their potential side effects, those are pretty good treatment for bipolar illness. With... Uh, schizophrenia, I mean, the main thrust is 
with medication. That's what Shulatory said 60 years, so that takes us back to, what, the 60s. So Thorazine had just come out in the mid-50s, so I think that's what he's talking about, Thorazine and all the antipsychotics, and then hospitals began to get emptied in part because of Thorazine and uh, subsequent drugs, but also because of an attempt at uh, saving money and uh, getting people out of the hospitals into the community. Um, the idea was great, but there, and there were not enough community services developed to, uh, to help with people, and I think that's part of the homeless problem at this point. Where does uh, epigenetics come into this? Uh, I think there's a reluctance now to talk about nature-nurture and that traditional dichotomy. We hear a lot about epigenetics, uh, more uh, a sense of environmental factors, certainly with genome and things of that sort. Uh, in fact, uh, schizophrenia, environmental stresses play a major factor. You're talking about the people out on the streets and so forth. That's really pretty clear. But there's also... Um, uh, a sense that, um, uh, for example, if you eat a lot of fish, supposedly, you'll help schizophrenia. I mean, there are those, there are people who eat nothing but fish. Somehow, vitamin D plays a role here. It's um, as a role that can't be simply tucked aside and given no attention. Fish oil, huh? Could be. I mean, I'd I'd have to look and see. I mean, places where they eat a lot of fish like Scandinavia or uh, Japan. Scandinavia has wonderful uh, social services for people. I don't know enough about, about Japan. But in some parts of the world, the lifelong prescription of antipsychotic medication is not the standard. In some parts of the world, um, people are given antipsychotics during the tough times, and then they're tapered down, and then people can go long periods of time without the antipsychotics. So I think different different ways of approaching the subject. Do you try to steer away from the drugs, though? I mean, for the most part. Not, not necessarily. I certainly have people on medication. Um, I, I, with people who were psychotic, you, you try to see what can be done. Can enough medicine stop the psychosis? Sometimes it can, and that that's great. If there are no side effects, that's terrific. But if someone is complaining of the side effects, can you make some headway with helping the person try to understand how their delusions or hallucinations developed or what the hallucinations and delusions mean to them? What's the secondary gain of having hallucinations or delusions? What are they telling themselves? For example, um, instead of being a lonely, unhappy person, it, it seems so much better to believe that millions of people think you're the cat's meow. Speaking so, of cats, I discovered that uh, supposedly, I don't want to get feline owners uh, upset here, but there's even some uh, notion that cat poop has chemicals in it that can s contribute to schizophrenia. I don't, again, these are like frontiers that we are pretty uh, in the dark about. And that one, that one, I'll have to check out, Michael. That's that's a new one on me. Well, another new one on me uh, was the fact that, and and this almost sounds racist. Darker skin supposedly increases 
the likelihood of schizophrenia. I don't know where they come up with that kind of research, but melanin or something along those lines. It's, it's where, where is that research from? This is it's online. It's all online. We don't know what uh, <laughs> what's real that's online and what is uh, completely concocted in delusion and maybe requires some psychoactive drugs to get those things out. But these are the things you can read about if you simply go online and access stuff on schizophrenia. You mentioned shock treatment before, though, and that's looked at now with a lot more benevolence than it used to be. A slight shock treatment with different kind of psychotic disorders is looked on well, almost really positively, isn't it? I, I don't know about with psychotic disorders, but certainly for extremely serious depression, yeah. Yeah. Well, Although I saw something recently saying that ketamine seems to be every bit as good as ECT. Can I ask you about severe depression? I mean, isn't that often linked to psychosis? A really uh, sort of depression that means uh, the person is pretty much checked out and suicidal ideation going on all the time, that sort of thing? No. no it's not necessarily not, psychosis? Not, not so much, no. I mean, if one has delusions and hallucinations, I mean, they could be persecutory. That might terrify someone and they may want to get away from it all. But no, often often the delusions are compensatory and help the person to get along when they're having a very tough time. That's why you have to go slowly and step by step to try to wean someone away from delusions. And as I mentioned, with this person who uh, had done so well for 38 years, um, it was very iffy during the time that she gave up her belief that her 20-year dead father was with her because uh, she had never really grieved about the loss of her real father because she'd always kept her imaginary father there with her. Well, that prompts me yeah. to ask you about the comfort that comes from delusions, you know, I mean, especially when people have gone through trauma sure. and so forth. You can have the delusion and find that it's easier to get through life if you keep that delusion and stoke it, so to speak. Or yeah, have it handy. If, if it didn't have any kind of negative side effects, like the woman I mentioned earlier who'd seen my older uh, colleague from Chestnut Lodge for all those years, the one with Mary, um, she began to pummel people. I mean, he wasn't the only person she had hit. She'd lost many jobs because uh, she would attack people verbally or physically. So it's not like it's just a lovely time. I mean, I, I suppose one could, could imagine a metaverse in which one had just good things happening, and perhaps uh, psychosis for some people can just be an early metaverse where one creates one's own universe with good beings and nice things happening but generally it's not just nice things well when you get into these delusions i mean sometimes uh, i imagine it can be pretty risky and perilous because some we're talking about people who are very on the edge in terms of volatility right. and potential violence if not against themselves against you as a therapist uh, occasionally people will attack me or have in the past anyway <laughs> but no, really no big deal. And I certainly, early in my career, would chase various people down the street and then we'd 
sent her over to the hospital after that. Um, but that's that's just goes with the territory. Um, but you know, most most of these things can be handled just by talking about them, trying to understand them, and knowing that there may be some drama involved. What about traditional psychotherapy? I mean, uh, there there is a lot of skepticism about its efficacy. Um, whether we're talking about late type of neurosis or whether we're talking about the kind of things that you've been dealing with all these years, uh, psychotic breaks and that sort of schizoid things and so forth. Um, there's there. What do you say to the public uh, attitude that? Psychoanalysis is just like another religion, and psycho you know, another religion with all of the defects and all of the drawbacks that religion has. Uh, you have to be a true believer to accept it, that sort of thing. I mean, I've heard this argument, as I'm sure you have, or that psychotherapy, you know, you're just long-term, long expense, and no guarantees. Yeah, well, it's a totally reasonable concern. I like to think that people who've really benefited from it, like uh, the ones I've mentioned earlier, that it was really worth it to them. And the ones I've mentioned uh, were just treated for relatively short periods of time and in the process gave up delusional systems that lasted for a very, very long time. Those are wonderful success stories. Um, could they have occurred through some other types of intervention than traditional psychotherapy, psychoanalysis? They hadn't. They hadn't. I mean, that young woman who was hospitalized at Langley Porter had been in Langley Porter for seven months and had been in another hospital, another location, for several months before that and was totally heavily medicated when I first saw her because no one had really said... So what are the voices saying? Huh, I wonder what that could mean. Occasionally you get lucky and stuff starts to fall into place. The one who had the two rats, I mean the two rats gnawing at her heart had been there for seven, seven and a half years. But nobody had thought, had thought to ask, I wonder what that means. This brings us back to, for example, some of the cases that Freud dealt with, like the Rat Man and uh, who comes to my Dora, those kind of cases, which seem mm -hmm. uh, to... I actually taught a course in Freud for a number of years, and students were very resistant, many of them, to that sort of analysis. They thought it went too far and got too remote from the problems at hand, which is, I guess, part of the criticism that I'm talking about. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not getting into things like penis envy or any of those kinds of things. I'm just trying to go with what the person is presenting and trying to understand how it developed. And for everybody, it's going to be somewhat different. Uh, I believe it was Eric who asked the question about trauma. Often there is a trauma involved in the development of these hallucinations and delusions. I'm struck by an anthropological fact that I came across that I may have mentioned to you that hunter-gatherer tribes or civilizations do not seem to be afflicted by these kind of modern problems of psychosis, like particularly schizophrenia that we're familiar with. That's wonderful. I, I love that. 
I was struck when I was a kid, I used to deliver fruit and produce to the state hospital. I was struck by all these people working at the state hospital in the gardens, the extremely extensive gardens. Fast forward to the 70s, maybe early 80s, there was a place in Marin called Marin Lodge. And there they had a very nice garden and people would do work in the garden. Is it possible if people have a sense of community, uh, meaningful work, work for the community, that that helps protect them against psychosis? Could be. Also, in a hunter-gatherer society, is the psychotic person revered? Is there a place for them? Um, are their visions uh, meaningful, as a medicine man's visions Prophets. might be meaningful? Yeah. yeah. But you know, I'm struck by something else here when you talk about your deliveries as a young boy. Uh, <laughs> we went to, uh, that is a class of mine, went to a mental hospital. And I, I don't know what they felt they were exposing us to or initiating us, but it was it was a kind of shocking and for some, I think, traumatic experience because there was madness. And it was madness that was so evident and so conspicuous that it was overwhelming. You know, uh, people screaming and just, pulling out their hair and catatonic staring at walls, all those kinds of things that we're talking about here that seemed almost beyond any kind of treatment because you have to, I mean, you as a therapist have to get into these people's minds, but sometimes right. it seems right. like those, there, there are too many walls up. There's, there's too much uh, that, that can't be penetrated. You see, I have exactly the opposite reaction. Great. That's really interesting. I applied to medical school on a whim. I got in. I never graduated from college. Got into medical school. Eh, a lot of smart kids there. I was 19 when I got in. I developed a nice relationship with the dean of students. Every couple of weeks I'd go in and I'd quit. And he'd chat with me. And uh, by the end of the chat, I hadn't quit. And the psychiatry courses the first two years were ridiculous. I had done honors English at Brown, and there, you know, development of characterization, you really got into things and made sense of it. And I thought the psychiatry courses were just boring. Then in the clinical years, early on in the clinical years, one of the assignments, I didn't know what I was going to do, one of the assignments was... Uh, psychiatry and real backward stuff like you're talking about. I loved it. I felt right at home. I, I said, this is really interesting. This Plus, is you felt probably you could help people. I mean, that's the big well, pull, isn't I mean, it? That, that, was, that was my young, perhaps arrogant belief, yeah, yeah. Um, that it was possible to help really disturbed people. And so I... Einstein was great in that it gave us a nearly year-long clerkship anywhere we wanted to go. So I contacted Ronnie Lang and uh, went there and hung out with in his office. But I also went out to Shenley Hospital, an anti-hospital hospital run by David Cooper. I'm sorry, what does that mean, an anti-hospital hospital? Well, it was a giant psychiatric hospital like Napa, but it had one unit which was non-drug, 
in which people were allowed to be as crazy as they wanted to be. And I spent several weeks just living on the unit like a, like a patient. Well, you mentioned R.D. Lang, and I mentioned his. you were having the opportunity to work with him. Uh, he really had a kind of, it's a little bit simplified, but uh, a view that people who become psychotic often are, <laughs> how shall I put this, they're more maybe confident than the rest of us because they can't adjust to this psychotic reality that they're, <laughs> that we manage to adjust to, we lay people and so on. Let me actually go... I've got another question here for you. This is from Chris in Tempe, Arizona, who says, Ira, is it oversimplifying to say that your patients respond well to being taken seriously about their hallucinations and delusions, that the hallucinations and delusions have meaning? Chris, I think you're absolutely right, period. It's the seriousness with which you take their delusions. In other words, it helps you create a pathway toward healing, toward... Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm probably the first person who's even asked what the delusions are or what definitely the first person asked well, what could that mean to you and then try to explore what a delusion or a hallucination might mean it's like a dream or a fantasy it, uh, obviously if a person has a dream or a fantasy or a hallucination it has some kind of meaning to them so of course you treat the other person as another person in in my hippie days, I had a friend, and uh, I just loved hanging out with him. Big, charismatic guy. And he'd go into any situation and say, Hey, man, what's happening? It's the same kind of thing. You just sit with someone. You try to understand what's going on, how the situation developed, how they got to be where they are. So am I taking them seriously? Yeah, of course. Let I mean, me take your notion here about dreams for a moment, because... Back to Freud, dreams, the royal road to the unconscious. Uh, maybe delusions can be, I think you're saying, a way to the unconscious too, or to find out what's being repressed and all of that. Right. Well, no, it's, it's usually right out there. It's not yeah. necessarily so repressed. Well, <laughs> and yet now there's a lot of new research that suggests that dreams may be just kind of uh, flotsam and jetsam and the fluvia of everyday life, that they don't necessarily have the meaning that was once ascribed to them. Mm. So all those years of writing my dreams down and making sense of them all, I mean, it could have just been me making sense of them, trying to understand them, and me trying to helping other people understand themes in their life and their dreams. Well, dreams can be very useful for self-understanding. In fact, a lot of what you do is trying to bring the self together, trying to right. create some kind of coherence or unity of the self, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that people recognize that all of this stuff is just their own self. The young girl, the voice is saying, shit in your father's mouth. Well, I mean, that was just her anger at her father. Yeah. What, what, what about that? You know, you have some kind of schizophrenia where uh, it's not exactly Tourette's, but people are just potty-mouthed all the time. I mean, it's like a kind of chronic letting loose of all sorts of profanity, that kind of thing. You've encountered that, I'm sure, haven't you? No. No? I have not. I mean, that's probably the origin of it, but I don't know. I'd have to find out what was going on there. Maybe there's something neurological going on, too. I, I don't know. I haven't seen that. How much is uh, mental illness, though, in in your present sense of things, 
is attributable to just the environment and what we live with and what we the stresses that we're under and those kinds of things because you can have a break from reality at any time i mean people do right um i don't walk down the street worrying that i'm going to have a break with reality no <laughs> well neither do i but people do <laughs> people are on the edge a lot of people are very vulnerable and on the edge okay of, if, yeah. if people are totally stressed out so the important thing would be to try to understand it um, environmental, yeah, of course, but I mean, one's own personal environment, such as abuse by a grandfather or a loss of a parent, those are in coming from the environment. But as far as the pollution levels or the latest uh, political brujas, I, I don't think that kind of thing drives too many people crazy. What does drive people crazy? Mainly trauma and mainly um, early experiences that are involved with traumatic? You know, probably. I mean, but schizophrenia is most likely a catch-all for a whole number of different conditions. Um, people becoming psychotic, under stress. Um, some people may be born with less ability to handle things. Other people have some terrible thing happen, like a death of a loved father or abuse by somebody and develop some compensatory uh, delusions to try to cope with things. Well, forgive me, schizophrenia is also inheritable, isn't it, as far as we know? Yeah, seems to be. Yeah, And that's something that's still... Uh, we don't quite understand as much as we would like to or as much as we would hope to. Could you talk a little bit about what you might want to tell people about observing, whether it's their friends or loved ones or wh where they could at least be able to detect? Not that they should be doing diagnosis, that's your job, but they can detect at least what might be onset of schizophrenia? Well, if someone's staring off into space a lot and uh, giggling... It used to be called inappropriate laughter. If someone is chuckling away about something that no one else can see, either they're on to something good or maybe they're starting to have some trouble. There are those who claim our vice president does that a lot, uh, but I don't think she's schizophrenic. Uh, some people, it's just yeah. a, kind of a nervous habit. Maybe she has a good sense of humor. Laughing. Maybe, maybe she finds things no, uh, she does, amusing actually, that other people I, I don't. That's why it becomes much more complicated. So there's a whole spectrum of, of schizophrenia, or for that matter, bipolar disorders? A continuum? Yeah, sure, sure. But as far as schizophrenia, you know, someone may be chuckling about something because they may see something amusing about life that the rest of us don't. Uh, perhaps they're more sensitive, more intelligent. Um, one of the things you have to watch out for is, is the withdrawal of attention from everyday reality. That often puts someone at greater risk. But they may be thinking about issues that are important to them. Not everybody gets lost in their thought. I mean, so, uh, again... You, you have to really get to know what's going on with the person. 
It's all different, though. I mean, say the person who comes in to see you who's having some delusions from that person on walking on the street who's yelling and screaming and talking to themselves uh, nonstop. Difference yeah. in character, I difference mean, in style, difference in what? Right. I mean, it may be a difference in style. Someone may be a very controlled person um, and yet be every bit as crazy internally as the person yelling and shouting in the streets. So somebody might have all kinds of paranoid, grandiose delusions but keep it to him or herself even though they might believe that there are hundreds or thousands of people um, following them, observing them, carrying on. But yes, there definitely are different styles of manifesting being psychotic. Well, I'm thinking about uh, something as well known as delusions of grandeur, which many people have, but other people have delusions almost on the... Uh antipode side of that you know they have delusions that they're uh, suffering and that they're impoverished and that they're going through all kinds of uh, privation I mean it's fascinating to you I'm sure to see all this gradation of delusion so many yeah, and a myriad and with, number right and with each of those you would want us first of all highlight it and wonder how those beliefs developed and what in their life led them to think that they were the second coming of Jesus or the lowest of the low and that everybody hated them. And for each and every one of us, there are reasons why a person begins to glom onto certain worldviews. Well, it's I, I understand why you were so fascinated at a young age with delving into this and uh, you certainly brought I really, up. I really was, Michael. I remember when we were going to the moon, and I used to chuckle to myself, maybe a little psychotically, but chuckle to myself. <laughs> Everybody's so concerned about outer space. What about inner space? So, yeah. So you think you've wrestled with a little psychosis perhaps too? Do we all in some degree? No. I don't know about all of us, but, you know, we all go through certain changes as we develop. Um, nothing psychotic, but certainly have thought about a lot of issues. And th at this stage of life, for example, um, as I'm nearing the end, it's wonderful to think about cosmology and origin myths and... Uh, the meaning of it all. It's just like the 60s again. Well, not quite. I don't know if we can ever go back to that era. But I'm often, I often think of what Poe said about, he called it the imp of the perverse, that sometimes you're up in a balcony and you have, or you're looking down into a canyon, you have this impulse in your head to jump or to somebody's leaning over, you want to push them or something. And, you know, normal people, what we call normal people, keep that impulse at bay and under control. But there certainly are those who simply succumb to it or can't control it. And I wonder what it is that separates. Um, I mean, that's sort of endlessly fascinating to me, as it must be to you. Yeah. No, you'd, again, you'd have to check with each individual. But obviously, some people can repress 
and some people have greater access to those kinds of uh, thoughts and feelings. Well, in that sense, repression is not necessarily a bad thing. Thank you for spending this time with us and well, thanks enlightening Thanks for having us. me, Michael. And let me also thanks, uh, and, and extend thanks to all of you who have been with us for this live interview and all of you who will be hearing this podcast episode in the future. If you haven't joined our growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, I urge you to do so, again, simply by going to graymatter.show. And my thanks to our team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Malachi, and to our esteemed guest, Dr. Ira Steinman. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.